Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 16. What we are going to do this evening is, as we go through Genesis chapter 16, uh, hit the pause button to reflect into what we find going on in the narrative between Sarai and Abram, in particular, this sin we read of, anger and wrath, as we find uh, Sarai retaliating, okay, against uh, her maidservant. So we'll talk more about that. Again, as always, I do thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen in, tune in to Seeds of Truth radio programming. It really is a privilege that you are taking time out of your very busy schedules, just not locally, but abroad even, as I note from one week to the next or every other week. It really is an honor to to see so many people listening across the country, especially in the countries of Mexico, Canada, Portugal, Spain, France. I often see folks listening in India, South Africa, Brazil, Chile, all of those countries and and countries that also have gone unmentioned. I do uh, welcome you. And as I do, I want you to, especially this evening, uh, roll up your sleeves a little bit and get ready to ask yourself some questions, Uh, to some degree, some hard questions. You have heard me talk about in the past that uh, great spiritual work of mercy, bearing wrongs patiently. Well, as we look at this capital sin of anger, this capital sin of of wrath, uh, we are going to ask some hard questions because we have to ask those hard questions if we're going to grow in our faith. So it's just not about going through a chapter that talks about the birth of Ishmael to talk about some of those key biblical pieces to better understand how God works in salvation history. That's part of it for sure. But there's always that deeper interrelational element going on, right? This is why we have been in the book of Genesis for so long, and we are only in Genesis chapter 16, because there's so much to talk about, so much to talk about, especially in the light of faith and reason and how that plays out in our relationships. Okay, so with that, if you want to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, and I will go ahead and read all of, uh, of 16. It's only 15 verses, so we can kind of take a topical view to what's going on here. All right, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid, and may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt 
on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my maid to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, maid of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Birlah Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, what are we to do with this narrative? Well, off the top, as we go through these verses, and again, as we look at this more topically, there are some facts that we need to be attentive to, to the least of which what we find in verse 2. When we read, And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now what's interesting here is this listening of Abram is very much an ominous note, recalling how Adam listened to the voice of his wife in the Garden of Eden. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, we hear what? Uh, that Adam listened to his wife. Uh, perhaps it also foreshadows what follows. If you were to go into the Hebrew for listened, the Hebrew word for listened is yishma, yishma. That is the same verbal root for the name Ishmael, yishmael, right? So yishma is the root to yishmael. Yishmael is the fruit of Abram listening to Sarai. Huh? It's interesting here how once again, when you get into the Hebrew, you can find a connection that not only is revelatory in of itself, but also points to something else already seen in sacred scripture, right? We've talked about this before, right? And here again, what we're talking about is the connection between Abram and Adam. As Adam listened to Eve, it led to this Huge problem, right? And so here we find Abram listening to Sarai's counsel, and it leads to the birth of Ishmael, who would certainly create many problems down the road. Now, that being said, what else is going on here? Well, the question was asked to me, was posed to me, 
Joe, why would Sarai even do this? Why would she counsel Abram to do what he did? Well, archaeological finds have shown that surrogate motherhood by a servant girl or concubine was indeed practiced in the ancient Near East. We see this in the Code of Hammurabi, uh, as well as uh, the Nuzi tablets. Now, why would this be a practice? Well, that childless couples could have measures to produce a family heir, right? So, to some degree, Sarai's actions are understood against the background of this domestic custom, if you will. Now, that being said, certainly there is something else much deeper going on here. Uh, Listen closely to what we find in this narrative. Uh, Distressed by infertility, Sarai makes a fateful decision to give Hagar to the embrace of her husband. The fallout is wide-ranging. What do we read in verse 4? And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So in verse 4, you see this rise of tension, rise of tension. What about verse 6? But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power to do her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So in verse 4, you have this tension, and consequently in verse 6, you have this retaliation. Then the fallout continues because as we know, as we read in verse 12, We have the birth of this wild and contentious son, right? He shall be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) I mean, listen to that. His hand against every man and, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So here you have uh, this fallout coming from a fateful decision. Does that sound familiar? You know, when I was reading over this text and reading up on some of the commentaries, this is the one thing that really stood out to me. You know, we might make little of the decisions we make from one day to the next. But be rest assured, my friends, when we make a poor decision and we fail to reconcile ourselves with our decision-making, kind of keeping them at arm's distance, there will be a fallout and we have to be present to that truth. This is a truth that should touch each and every one of us. And so, as we are talking about this. For this reason, I wanted to kind of just ruminate with this topic of anger and wrath. There's an excellent work out there. I think I've quoted this before by Dr. Vost, Kevin Vost. He's a psychologist titled The Seven Deadly Sins, A Thomistic Guide to Vanquishing Vice and Sin. He's reflecting into anger. He's reflecting into wrath. And he makes a number of really good points that I thought was relevant to our discussion this evening. And I wanted to kind of just read and reflect with Dr. Vost here a little bit. So from the outset, he makes the point that we need to examine our conscience for the vice of wrath. And as he talks about this, he says, you want to know what? You need to start by examining your heart that when you reflect into this capital sin of anger, this capital sin of wrath, it is here where we probably see St. Thomas's most integrated view of who we are in in matter and spirit, body and soul. And here he's quoting St. Thomas Aquinas. Anger is a kindling of blood around the heart. A kindling of blood around the heart. 
that a disposition to anger arises from an emotion of the soul due to the wrong indicted. So then what are we to do, right? But to reflect on our possible recent sins of wrath, that we might begin asking ourselves the necessary questions, whether or not we have felt riled up by anything lately. I mean, has anything gotten your heart pounding? Has anything raised your blood pressure and spurred thoughts of revenge? And if so, has it clouded or partially blinded your reason? Has it tempted you to acts of injustice? And certainly we know that anger is not always a sin. I can hear some of you say, well, wait a second, Joe. Anger is not always a sin. Sure, you're right. And for that reason, we have to ask other questions. If you were so riled up, was your anger directed at the right person, a truly guilty party, at the right time? That is to say, after a delay for cooling and reflection, and for the right reasons. That is to say, you know, to avenge a true wrong and to correct the guilty party rather than to what but harm him. So, this whole questioning of whether or not we have become angry then leads, I think, to a whole other series of questions. Questions that, as I noted off the top, have to be asked. Have I allowed myself to become irritable? That hair-triggered anger that goes off at the slightest of inconveniences? Have I cursed the driver who drove too slowly? The, the cabinet that got in the way of my head, or maybe the bedpost that crashed into my toe, right? Have you ever had those battles? Have you ever had those confrontations? Where you start to yell at this inanimate object, right? We've all been there. Have we allowed ourselves to become sullen, nursing old wounds, keeping them locked in our chest, perhaps even relishing in them slowly? With that simmering anger, here again lies that counter work of mercy, bearing wrongs patiently. Have I become so ill-tempered, stern, or even rancorous that I have not relented in my anger or apologized even after I have taken out some unjust action of revenge or punishment, even perhaps with a loved one? Where are we there in our closest relationships? with our spouses, with our children. Brothers and sisters, there are very few sins that have such dramatic fallout than anger. And what's so mind-numbing at times is that far too often, far too often, we have put ourselves in the right for being angry. So, searching out our conscience is so necessary is it not? Not only with this capital sin of anger, but those other sins that like to nestle in quite closely, huh? So herein lies another series of questions, a series of questions that uh, Dr. Vos posts here. Have I mentally belittled the object of my anger, denigrating his or her worth through the daughter of indignation? Indignation. Have I experienced a swelling of mind as my calm and rational thoughts have been overwhelmed by growing thoughts of revenge? Boy, do those questions ring true for me. 
I don't know about you. Have my words been wrathful? Has my anger led to the confused, thoughtless, or even, or even vulgar words that bespeak clamor? Have I been so carried away with rage that I have even cursed God himself with words bespeaking blasphemy? Questions that are out there that, yes, we need to ask. Have I engaged in quarreling? angrily provoking others and possibly leading to hurtful acts, even acts of violence. More or less a question we took up for all but 30 minutes last week in our discussion on gossip, right? Now, all that being said, once we have examined our conscience for traces of these kind of wrathful thoughts, these kind of wrathful words and deeds, it is then that we are in the best position to work to eradicate such sins in the future and ultimately, of course, to obtain forgiveness for past sins of wrath. Brothers and sisters, wrathful anger is dangerous because it can so easily cloud and even blind our sense of right from wrong, our true sense of reason. To confess sins of wrath, on the contrary, demands the use of what but our reason to put those wrathful sins under reason's microscope after our heart rates and, and thought rates have returned to baseline then then we will be where we need to be if we can only train ourselves to call out and, and confess the various kinds and daughters of wrath that we may tend to manifest the most often Maybe our confessor or our spiritual mentor will be in the best possible position to help supply us with remedies to wrath that might help us free us to be the person that we are called to be. It is necessary to hit the pause button, my friends, and to reflect with this topic of anger, with this topic of wrath, because I do believe that it is one of those capital sins, if not the capital sin we have talked about all of them over the course of time that we most neglect. Because it is the one capital sin that we rationalize to the point where we justify it no matter the circumstance. And when we do that, we are giving birth to the next fallout. And I emphasize that because this, again, is what is going on in this particular narrative. There is great fallout. All right. What other things can we talk about here in this narrative? Well, how about verse 6 as it relates to the larger narrative of salvation history? Uh, dealt harshly. Now, as we just put this in the context of the fallout, specific to one family and then what that teaches us, what about the larger family of God? The same verb for dealt harshly is rendered uh, oppressed in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. This, in many ways, sets up a kind of reversal in the Pentateuch. What do I mean? Well, what you have here is the oppression of Hagar and how it will backfire when Sarai's great-grandson, Joseph, is taken as a slave to who? Hagar was a maidservant from where? Egypt, Egypt, 
So this all backfires when Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. By the who? Ishmaelites, as we read in, in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. In fact, let us go there. Let us turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Give you a second to turn. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the who? Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. Isn't that interesting? And let us remember what we are talking about here. This isn't like a period of, say, 500 years, but just a couple generations. So the events that we read about in Genesis chapter 16 certainly would have been resonating with the Ishmaelite clan, huh? Again, these are necessary to see because what it affords is a deeper understanding of the continuity of sacred scripture as a whole, and even more specifically, how God works in salvation history. To be a careful reader and interpreter of the biblical text is to come to see how it is all interconnected, if you will. And you can come to that deeper understanding once you get underneath the Hebrew and how that Hebrew points both backward and forward, revealing the continuity of what lies in the before and the after. Okay? All right. How about the angel of the Lord we read about in verse 7, the Malach Yahweh? Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, the the Malach, that's uh, Hebrew, right, for angel or, or messenger, messenger of Yahweh. Sometimes this figure appears to be a messenger of God sent from heaven to speak in God's name. But as the Ignatius commentary highlights here, he often appears to be an actual manifestation of God and a sounding forth of his own divine voice. This is what we read in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Certainly we could say for theological and other reasons, this messenger is most likely an angel who mediates the words of God to the world and, and manifests his divine presence in visible and audible ways. This is necessary. If you were to look at the specific verses, you do find, I think, a theme. What do you hear in all of these contexts? The angel of the Lord is said to be endowed with divine wisdom in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 17. He is called upon to lead the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, to thwart the enemies of Israel in Numbers chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, to send divine judgments on Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 16, and of course, to announce the birth of significant children in Israel in Genesis chapter 16 that we just read, and Judges chapter 13, verse 3, including, oh, by the way, the Messiah himself, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Brothers and sisters, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God as he is also described, comes as one manifesting the power of God and how it works in salvation history, pointing towards his son. This is ultimately what draws all of these images together. Okay? All right, lastly here, just verse 13, only because it was something that jumped out at me. 
You know, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? What's going on there? Well, the ancients believed that seeing God directly would bring what? What do we read in Exodus chapter 32? But instant death. Okay? All right, with that, we will wrap up. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to send me an email, or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just offer you praise and adoration for the greatness of your love. During this Holy Week, we are reminded of your heroic, sacrificial love. Give us the grace that we might lay down our lives before you. That as we look back into the book of Genesis, we are reminded that you held all of these truths so deep in your own heart. And all of these truths were, were present before you as you walked your way of the cross. Give us the strength to walk our own way of the cross as you call us to embrace that way which leads to truth and life. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.